Horace, what are you doing? We aren't all heathens. Oh, I had forgotten my sister's strange tribal habits. The beef will seem less tough when she has invoked a blessing upon it. Horace Femme, if I can't hear, I can see. You're blaspheming. On the contrary, my dear Rebecca, I was merely telling your wondering guests that you were about to thank the gods for their bounty. That'll do. I know your mocking, lying tongue. To thank them for the health and prosperity and happiness granted to this family, for its years of peace and plenty. To thank them for having created Rebecca Femme and Roderick Femme and Saul... Stop! Bless, O Lord, this rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. Amen. Have a potato. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolain. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. And in the last episode, it was my first choice of Rebecca, and so this episode is devoted to your choice. Before we get into that, I just want to tell you, that thing that they say about when you are performing scenes in which you eat, yes, and they say, don't ever actually eat the food... Boy, is it true. Is it? Because in that opening, we uh-huh. had to do so many takes. I ate 14 whole potatoes. And I ate so much rhubarb. It was disgusting. Well, my selection this time is The Old Dark House from 1932, directed by James Whale, starring Boris Karloff, Ernest Thesiger, Gloria Stewart, Raymond Massey, Charles Lawton. My favorite. Melvin Douglas. Lillian Bond, Eva Moore, Brimber Wills, and Elspeth Dudgeon, who was billed as John for this particular film, which we'll get to in a little while. It happened to be the American film debut of Lawton, Thesiger, and Massey, who is my favorite Lincoln from Abe Lincoln in Illinois from 1940. Cole, why did you choose this one for your kickoff episode? How I found it ties into our central mission with the podcast an awful lot, I think. We'll probably talk a lot this episode about cultivating a curatorial mindset and making connections like you mentioned in the previous episode. I come from the last great generation of tracking things down the old-fashioned way. The last generation that had to scour liner notes and subscribe to zines and find things through word of mouth and have friends in other towns who were finding out about cool things that told you about those things. I know not everyone has that tendency. If you, as a kid, made mixed tapes or, I guess, CDs at this point, if you were always thinking about ways to connect one bit of art to another and that you wanted to share that with people and get them excited about that, I found that movie this way. Where I initially found out about it was um, going through one of those musty old books or magazines uh, and coming across an article about films that were once thought lost. After this had its initial run in the late 30s, it seemed to disappear and um, went into the universal vaults 
presumably forever until Curtis Harrington, who was a protege of James Wales, insisted that Universal let him dig around in the vaults and see what was there, and he found a print that was then restored and restruck. Oh, very cool. Well, I came to this film in kind of the roundabout way that you're describing and what we're hoping to inspire in others, in that you showed this film to me. I had never heard of it. I knew who James Whale was and was familiar with every actor in the film, for the most part. And so it was one of those discoveries that I'm so glad that I found because someone uh, brought it to my attention. And I used to do the same thing that you did, probably on a smaller scale. Well, I still do, which is anytime I read about something I haven't heard about, try to go find it. And that leads me to the next place and the next place and all those lists of this is what so-and-so, this is the the recommendations that Director X has, the, their favorite whatever. I would always follow those down and, and follow every reference to any point that I could or wander the video store shelves and just pick things up that sounded interesting and go from there. And it takes you to all kinds of terrific places like this movie. And what did you think about it the first time I showed it to you? Well, it was also during our early courtship period. So there are a lot of wonderful memories around it. But I, I think we watched it, correct me if I'm wrong, one of I those sort of know late how at to night. Seduce a lady. <laughs> one of those late at night. Uh, you said, I think that we should watch this. And you talked about how much you loved it. And we put it on, and I was. Uh, blown away by it to say the least but now I've only seen it twice and so I have to watch it how many more times to keep up with how many times you've seen it every day from now until April 4th 2042 okay Uh, I guess I'll I'll get on that as soon as we finish uh, recording this episode so that's how I discovered the film okay do you remember generally what year that was, just for my own interest? What year when, what when was? you first saw it? That had to be right around 2003 after the DVD initially came out. I had been looking forward to it for a long time, and I had never come across it on VHS for whatever reason. But I got the DVD almost immediately after it was released. And I don't begrudge the current generation the internet, by the way. That is... I, it's super useful, and I use it all the time. And Me it too. puts everything at your fingertips and... Those of us who enjoy making those connections, we can just make them a lot faster. And the only thing that's slightly sad about it is that it feels like you don't earn it as much Mm. because it's so instant. You get that gratification right away. You can find out about these obscure, wonderful things, and you don't have to travel to the four corners of the earth to find out about it or put in the time or dig around in dirty stacks of books. And that's it takes half the fun of it away. But still, that said, when you go to bookstores and record stores, if you want to figure out how to do this, if you're one of those people that is just beginning to figure these things out or you don't know much about how to do this sort of detective work, just talk to people. When you go to bookstores and record stores, talk to the staff, cultivate a relationship with those people because they handle that stuff all the time and being one of those people we wait all day to get to tell someone about something new and exciting and put that thing in their hands that allows them to take the next step in their evolution or understanding or appreciation of a certain art form 
We wait all day to get someone who's excited about finding out about something new. And film programmers, if you are listening, go do career days at schools. Hey, that's a good idea. We need more of those folks. If, when I was a child, I had learned that this being a film programmer was a possibility and having that sort of curatorial mindset already, do you know how excited I would have been? My life might have been considerably different than it turned out now. Instead of listening to all these yahoos, these kids that wanted to be firemen and doctors and veterinarians. (laughs) Who needs them? Astronauts sucking up all the glory. (laughs) Yeah. When we could have someone there from the Cinematheque. Yes. Helping us take the next step. Talk about restoring some 35 millimeter prints. That's what matters. And that could have been super exciting. They Mm -hmm. could have brought down some nitrate, set it on fire. (laughs) Then the fireman who was already there could have helped put it out and would have been a nice segue into the fireman's segment. Yeah, earn their money. Anyway. Anyway, let's talk about the movie. Okay. It is a pretty basic story to start with. It begins with travelers on a rainy night in the Welsh countryside that are cut off and forced to spend the night in a spooky house populated by a pretty peculiar family. Things get testy with the after-dinner conversation cutting a little too close to the bone. Class distinctions emerge. Things hurtle toward a final confrontation. But it's not as simple as it sounds. James Whale took a stale, hackneyed formula that was tired already in 1932 and did away with the cliches. There was no lost will, no disappearing corpses, no hands from behind the panel in the wall. And he focused simply on what happens when you put a bunch of normals in a house full of lunatics. You're in their world now. Your rules don't apply. The outsiders have the power. It echoes all the way down through to John Waters and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which further ripped the genre apart in 1974. Charles Adams based Lurch on Boris Karloff's character Morgan in this film. It was so influential that you still feel the effects of it today. The thing about it, though, is that it's really funny, which in turn makes the horror that much more effective. Uh, At first, just charming and off-kilter, but then that off-kilter extends to pyromania and attempted homicide. (laughs) Uh, Not just awkwardness with other people's strange customs. The first serious cracks begin to show in the scene early on with Eva Moore and Gloria Stewart when Gloria Stewart goes to change her clothes after coming in out of the rain. Those are some of my favorite shots, by the way, too, in that specific scene. Really interesting. Lots of different point of view shots in that. But I did want to ask a question. Now, Gloria Stewart famously lived to be, uh, what, 157 years old? Is she still alive? Is she 175 now? I think she was more famous as being the woman that sunk the Titanic. Yeah, that's that's a lot hanging around her chest, if you know what I mean. If you get it from the movie (laughs) Titanic. She was a big raft hog, too. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, there was plenty of room on that plank. Plenty of room. Plenty of room. Or they could have at least taking turns babe if we are ever in the north atlantic hanging onto a plank 
and I got this big old chain wrapped around my neck and you are dangling off. I will switch places with you every two and a half minutes or so. I appreciate that. Thank you. Anyway, that scene, that scene is super interesting because that is the point at which you realize you are through the looking glass, literally, literally. because everything is shot with this funhouse mirror aesthetic. It looks crazy. It's wonderful. And preceded by the classic walking down the rainy hallway with curtains billowing in that you probably saw the first time in Paul Linney's The Cat and the Canary in 1927 and then have seen a million times since then. Yes, but it was great there. And luckily, James Whale was actually able to find a little gargoyle in uh, in even more. <laughs> An actual little Human creature. gargoyle. After that happens, and Gloria Stewart returns to the fireside to join the other travelers... She should also be wearing a coat, by the way. Uh, says you. She regains her composure just in time for Charles Lawton and Lillian Bond's arrival, who bring in more bluster than even the storm does. Uh, and I specifically wrote down the word bluster as well. Did and you they, really? I did. It's right there. And they come in singing and dancing. And for me, if I were in that existing house party, I would have gotten up and hung out in my waterlogged car because that those are the worst house guests you ever want to be around. A bunch of loud mouths. All you have to do is offer them a potato. True. That comes later. So tempers run short after dinner when they are gathered around the fireside and Lawton basically lays out his big, beefy, broken, working-class <laughs> heart for all to see. You mentioned his working-class heart. So is that is that a theme that's underlying this film? Is the time period really important? It's extremely important. The whole thing is shot through with class distinction, and that stems initially from the source material, which is J.B. Priestley's novel Benighted from 1927. And I listened to a BBC radio drama version of An Inspector Calls, which is also by J.B. Priestley, and I believe it's 1945. Uh, and this play at least as it was performed, really came off to me like a Barton Fink issues drama. It's uh, very much about class and the time period and big social issues writ large. And they actually also made a film out of it later with your favorite of mine, Alistair Sim. Oh, I have not yeah, seen that. I think it would be worth checking out. So J.B. Priestley was essentially the Clifford Odets of the UK. I think so. In addition to the level of class distinction that J.B. Priestley brings to it with the source material, there is also the added layer that James Whale put on top of that based upon his lower class upbringing, which he kept a deep, dark secret. One thing I really like about uh, sort of a byproduct of, of having a discussion about class is that the Charles Lawton and Lillian Bond relationship, to me, is the most honest and real one i really enjoyed that it's it's well not even alluded to they specifically say that they weekend together and they're not married clearly and uh, they have a warm healthy open discussion about their feelings and who they are and you don't really see that with well of course it's not appropriate for other characters necessarily but it's a really it's a big breath of fresh air you also don't see it two years later again once the Hayes Code 
goes full throttle. And we talked about the Hayes Code a lot with the Rebecca episode as well. It plays a big part, the Hayes Code does, in Whale's early career, because a film he made prior to this one, Waterloo Bridge, which is my favorite non-horror film that James Whale ever made, could only have been made prior to 1934. It was a story about a soldier who falls in love with a prostitute, and after the success of Frankenstein, Universal considered re-releasing Waterloo Bridge, but the Hayes Code made that impossible. The subject matter was would never have passed the censorship board at that point, and so they nixed the whole idea of putting it out again. And then they just reworked it, changed, changed characters, changed endings. What did they do to they it? They did a lot of things. They did it a couple of times. A remake was made in 1940 with Vivian Lee, and it was also remade with a new name, Gabby, in 1956, in which they changed the ending from the sad ending of the original film mm-hmm. to a happy ending, inexplicably. So the only way to see the really great film that James Whale made in 1931 is to find it in a TCM archive collection. That's the Forbidden Hollywood Volume 1 set that also includes Red-Headed Woman with Gene Harlow and especially great because you get Barbara Stanwyck in Babyface. Yes. And in keeping with our theme of making connections, there are a whole bunch that stem from Waterloo Bridge onward for James Whale. May Clark, whose performance is really ahead of its time in Waterloo Bridge, later played the role of the doctor's fiance in Frankenstein. Ben Levy, who wrote the screenplay for Waterloo Bridge, also wrote the screenplay for this film, The Old Dark House. Arthur Edison, who was the cinematographer for Waterloo Bridge, also worked on Frankenstein, The Invisible Man. He went on to inject that German expressionism sensibility into film noir, shooting films like The Maltese Falcon, Three Strangers Mm. with Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet. And in a roundabout way, tying this episode back to our inaugural episode, R.C. Sheriff, who also co-wrote the screenplay for The Old Dark House, He worked with Whale on The Invisible Man and The Bride of Frankenstein, and he also worked on the screenplay for That Hamilton Woman, which is the film that Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee made in 1941 after they didn't get to make Hitchcock's Rebecca together. Okay. The performances for me, switching gears for a moment, are uh, across the board excellent. I want to shine the light on a couple of key people for me. Number one, Charles Lawton. I've already mentioned him how many times, and I will get to him again later because he is in my recommendation pick, which we'll get to at the end of the episode. But Charles Lawton for me is always fantastic and always the most believable person in anything that he is doing, any character that he is playing from a hunchback to, uh, you know, Yorkshire guy who's pulled himself up from the bootstraps having a weekend with his good time chorus girl person and uh ernest sessinger i think is the most naturally talented actor in this and the most naturally comedic actor again also believable how do you have a person that instantly you look at him and you think oh yeah he's been locked up in this uh, weirdo house in Wales for however many years and probably never left and this is probably only the tip of the weird iceberg for him totally believable 
I do struggle a little bit with Raymond Massey and Gloria Stewart and Melvin Douglas from the uh, accent standpoint. I think it doesn't come off as incredibly believable the whole time. So it's it's a little bit wonky for me. But I know you love Raymond Massey. You mentioned earlier. I do. If you ever get the chance to see Abe Lincoln in Illinois, you should do it. It's wonderful. Uh, so Melvin Douglas, for me, I now go back and watch a lot of these one-hour, 65, 70-minute older films that I don't know how popular they were at the time, but Melvin Douglas seems to be in a million of them and always looks completely miscast, so I wonder if he was the only actor on the lot at the time because I'm thinking of the vampire bat uh, where he's supposed to be in Bavaria, I think. He's wearing a tuxedo and smoking a pipe. And it's very unconvincing. But in this film, I think he's perfectly cast. He is perfectly cast. And one of the interesting things I noticed about his performance in this is the introduction of his character. You don't even know he's there initially. Yes. In the car traveling with Raymond Massey and Gloria Stewart. And for the entirety of the first half of the film... All he seems to do is deflect, deflect, uh-huh. deflect. Nothing is worth taking seriously. And this ties into another central theme, that post-World War One disillusionment that that generation felt. And he has a, a little monologue about that, too, which I think comes off really well. He does have great scenes with Lillian Bond, and I think that... Uh, James Lowell was able to achieve this shifting tone depending on the point that we're at in the movie. They have a, a really wonderful romantic connection that also comes off weird that's happening in a different part of the house. Well, they're in the barn, actually, while this other crazy business is happening in the old dark house. So ultimately, love is the only thing that's worth it for Penderel, Melvin yes. Douglas's character. It saves him in the end, spoiler alert. It does. All of these characters are damaged, but maybe his most of all prior to the beginning of the film? Just a, fun- so? just a function of belonging to that generation. Hmm. Because the, the Fims, all the people who live in the house, they're so isolated and in a world unto themselves that whatever is going on in the outside world means literally nothing to Yes, them. they're completely untouched by the rest of the world. So it's either the most damaged are either Lawton with his broken heart, which is significant, or Melvin Douglas, whose character has lived through the previously unimaginable horrors of World War One. And this time around, it made me think an awful lot about Wade Davis's book, into the silence. It's the book about uh, George Ballery and the struggle to climb Mount Everest. It gives a lot of context to the pre and post World War One period and exactly how that affected the world and specifically England. Right. And men of that generation. It informed every single thing they did. There was no escaping it. And ultimately, I'm sure a great many people felt exactly like Melvin Douglas's character that I don't think enough things are worthwhile. I think I still have to come out on the side of Charles Lawton because he loses the girl twice. Mm, for him, revenge is enough. He is so fueled by striking back at mm, okay. the members of society that contributed to the death of his, the untimely death of his wife. 
that that's what powers that big roast beef heart. He's gonna, he's gonna make his pile and screw all of you. Exactly. Okay. Once again, the Magic Lantern players highlighted a pivotal scene that would be uh, you and I highlighted the supper scene, a pivotal scene in the film. Where do we go from there? Well, after the supper scene, you have the previous scene that I mentioned about conversation by the fireside and tempers running short and all of these issues about class distinction starting to come out. After that, the characters break into these rotating groups of two and three that end up exploring the house or being sent on various errands. And that's where we meet the patriarch of the family. Very important. Who is 102 years old. Yes, that's very old, isn't it? (laughs) That's a line from the movie. Good one. (laughs) Roderick Fimm, who is an invalid and being kept upstairs sequestered away from the rest of the family. And that part was played by Elspeth Dudgeon, who was billed as John, and in fact introduced the entire cast as John until the production wrapped and James Whale unveiled her as the woman she actually is. (laughs) No one else sounded decrepit enough. None of the male actors that they tried to get for the part, I should say, sounded decrepit enough and ruined enough and creaky enough and so Elspeth Dudgeon ended up playing the role mission accomplished mission accomplished yeah i don't i don't need to retake that <laughs> <laughs> she's also notable for being in an otherwise totally forgettable similar genre exercise disagree shh the octopus i wasn't telling you to shh but the title of the film is Shh, The Octopus. It must be seen, and it must be seen to be believed. Uh, yeah, right. We do agree to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> In this case, <laughs> I don't need to see it again. There are two interesting things about it for me. One, it's set in a lighthouse. Yes. So that's kind of cool yeah. and distinctive. Awesome. And there is a transformation scene, which is... it. That part must be seen to be believed when... Elspeth Dudgeon shows her true face Yes. to the other characters in the lighthouse when the villain is revealed. It's very, very cool. It is uncanny. We're, we'll have to link to it in the uh, post. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. It's, it's a very pretty neat. neat trick. But otherwise, but otherwise, all you get in the octopus is Hugh Herbert, who oh. I would like to murder myself. Yes. Going around doing his trademark woo-woo sounds for 70 minutes. That never gets tiring. No, that's incorrect. It gets tiring the first time that you've heard it. The first time you've heard it, you want to uh, put his face in the ground. And he is in a ton of Warner Brothers stuff from the era, inexplicably. Including with my buddy Regis Toomey, but that's a whole other episode. And then eventually we are introduced to Saul, the oldest brother. Very pivotal character. And he would definitely rather light a candle than curse your darkness. (laughs) Here it becomes more obvious to me that this is no paint-by-numbers genre exercise. Here's where it becomes truly scary. Because he is truly a homicidal maniac. 
and the fight choreography, not just in the Saul scenes, but throughout is really, really good. It really looks like they are uh, trying to murder each other. It does. And interestingly enough, his fight scene with Melvin Douglas during the fight, I didn't know if you noticed this or not, but he bites his throat. Whoa, I did not. If you go back and watch it again, you'll see that, yeah, he sinks his teeth into Melvin Douglas's throat. Melvin Douglas is playing the subtext on that one, too. And they edited that part out of the fight sequence when they reissued it in 1939. Too bad. Yeah. Because it really underscores his madness and the fact that Saul is willing to go further than you are to get his point across. That's true. You could think that you could take a little old man, but he's got crazy psycho strength. He does. And when you combine his strength with Karloff's character's strength... Morgan... You have the greatest wrestling tag team in the history of universal horror. Yes. The Saul Morgan axis is also one of my favorite things about the film. Why is that? Those two characters in particular, because they are the outsiders in a family of outsiders. Morgan's character obviously is a servant. He is not a true family member. And possibly even when you look at his physical characteristics... There's a very subtle indication that he may be a different race, so there may be issues of race involved in that. Okay, I was going to ask you, I wasn't sure if he was a brother, a, you know, illegitimate brother, kept around the family Belial secret. I don't don't know. No, it was not a basket case scenario. (laughs) It looks like, he looks like he could be. But it's clear for the entirety of the film that he is essentially a pack animal, Yes. He is disrespected by Horace from the very beginning. Rebecca only uses him in a servant capacity. There's no true affection between any of those characters. But when he carries Saul's body off at the end, you can tell that he has lost the only friend he's got in the entire world. Because he lets Saul out initially, doesn't he? So he starts to instigate that. He does. Okay. And they implied that he was the only one who could keep Saul under control. Yes. So when the storm starts to rage and Morgan starts to drink and he gets these ideas that Saul is the answer to tonight's problems. Yes. Then all bets are off. Another favorite moment of mine is the push-in shot when we first meet Horace. It's beautiful going up the stairs. And you don't, I think, see that a lot in films of this period. You see it in James Whales' stuff an awful lot because he liked to do that three-stage push-in to introduce significant characters. You see it with his introduction of Frankenstein's monster. You see it with the introduction of the Invisible Man. He really underlined when you were meeting those pivotal characters for the first time. He he did that often. I'll least. have to go back and rewatch. Yeah, it's kind of fun to see because it's very... It's very distinctive. Well, I think the I think the overall point is that this film and his others bear repeated viewings. They do. They do. And that push in on Thesiger serves to underscore how much the German expressionism permeates the design of the film all the way down to his nostrils. <laughs> they are caverns. They are that. I, at first, I thought they were even made up to be exaggerated, but I don't think so. After yeah. having seen him in other things uh, yes. with Karloff, the ghoul. Those were real caverns then. Those were his real caverns. But the German expressionist touches extend 
to a lot of the set design, you'll notice that even the shadows have shadows, impossible angles. Yes. And the presence of flame throughout makes it clear from the very beginning that they are truly in hell. They are spending a night in hell. And uh, it's funny that the very first line in the film is hell. Yeah, it's super obvious. By the time you get to Saul and Penderel's fight, every flat surface in the room has flame reflected off of it somehow. I truly did not notice that in our last viewing of it. I, I really need to, I need to go back again. So it really serves to punctuate how this group of travelers is spending the longest night of their lives in what is essentially a hellscape. Uh, which reminds me, you made the connection earlier to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So how do you get from the old dark house to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? The template is almost the same. A group of travelers broken down in the country happen upon a bizarre family and end up spending the longest night of their lives. It skewers the traditional family values in a similar way that this does. There's a central dinner sequence. It's true. There's even a decrepit patriarch in storage in the attic. That's true. There are a lot of details that are the same. Obviously, being 1974 and the Hayes Code no longer being an issue, they could take it a lot further. Yes. Now, point, counterpoint. Who is worse, Franklin or uh, Charles Lawton's character? Oh, Franklin. <laughs> there is no character in the history of film that deserves to die more than Franklin in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay. All right. It's not up for debate. Okay. Well, you're pointing out to me all kinds of things that I have not noticed in the two times that I've watched this movie. So I think it really bears multiple viewings. Now, do you find anything new each time that you watched it? I do. In fact, just this time, the last time we watched it to prepare for this episode, I noticed that moment after... Eva Moore and Gloria Stewart's confrontation when Eva Moore goes to leave the room yes. and she straightens her bangs. Oh, I didn't... After that diatribe that she lays on Gloria Stewart about her fine alabaster skin and her wickedness and how she pursues the joys of fleshly love and her vanity, she takes that little moment to acknowledge the very characteristics in her that she was just railing against Inglorious Stewart. I never really noticed that little touch at the end of that scene before, but it made her a little bit more accessible and mm. made her less harsh than she had been in every single second of the film up until that point. <laughs> and then every single second afterwards. Right. But there's that little moment where she becomes a little more human, mm. and I really enjoyed noticing that this time. Oh, great. Always something new to find. Now... Tell me why you like this movie. Because I was born on October 28th. And as everyone who has the distinct privilege of being born in the end of October knows, it is the best time of the year to have a birthday. Hmm. I want it to be Halloween, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. <laughs> and that's what this film is like. These people live... In Halloween, every waking moment. You want a trick-or-treat to the old dark house, don't you? I would... It's all I want. Yeah. It's all I want in the whole wide world. I want to knock on the door, 
be taken in by the family, and have to navigate living there forever. Can I uh, make out with Melvin Douglas in the barn while you are doing that? You do whatever you like. Okay, thanks. I'll be upstairs with Roderick. <laughs> and truly, it's just witty and dark and creepy. It's full of atmosphere. And it really is my favorite spooky movie. And it really does stem from having a birthday at the best possible time of the year. What are your other choices? You could have an Easter birthday. Christmas birthday, the worst. Valentine's birthday, who cares? Easter birthday is good, I guess, if you're into pastels. Yeah. Or you like eating little rabbit ears. You could have a birthday like yours, which is possibly the lamest. <sighs> it's, uh, my birthday is around Labor Day. Celebrating honest toil in the seamy underbelly of the unions now. But uh, it, it it is the worst. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, I don't know if yours is the best. Maybe you'll have some, some reasons to make your case for that. But mine is the worst. I just so happen to have really? a list of activities that you could take part in on my birthday. And a list of activities that we could take part in on your birthday. Okay. All right. Where do we start? Um, you can read the list of things that happen on my birthday, and then we'll just compare and contrast. Okay. So this is the list of all of the fabulous and wonderful and amazing things, blah, 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 that happen on Halloween birthdays. First, jack-o'-lanterns. Or, for yours... We could go to a street parade that exhibits to the public the strength and esprit de corps of trade and labor organizations. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yours would include free candy. Nobody wants that. Yours would include rallies and political demonstrations which highlight the problems faced by workers. Okay. Uh, further to the child labor theme, yours would include fun costumes. Yours could potentially include speeches by union leaders and political figures to create a general awareness about the condition of American laborers. Okay, I'm going to go on a little rant right now, because what you're not saying, which is the truly worst part of the Labor Day birthday, I started the first day of school many years on my birthday. Oh, well, your party happens at 3.15 with nobody because nobody knows you and nobody knows it's your birthday, so you're stuck with the neighborhood kids or whatever. Anyway, the teachers would always do those, it's the monthly birthday, so here we're going to celebrate all the September birthdays. They would do that around September 15th, you know, because they don't have it on the first day of school necessarily. So weeks afterwards, I would get my... Oh, happy birthday, Eric. I hope it was a good one. I hope you had fun with that. It was terrible. It was awful. So, truly, you know, I think it started as a good thing. Uh, we want to end child labor and we want to bring uh, our honest attention to the perils of the working class. We want to end uh, premature death on the assembly line, things like that. And now it's just, um, you know, it's lost all it's lost its good intentions i think and now it's just a big old buzz kill for those of us that have their birthdays right around it so you're saying a haymarket massacre themed party as a child wasn't did not go over well you could use it during your birthday and people might be really interested in it 
I believe there's also one fun fact on that list as well. Uh, there is. Uh, this is a Halloween fun fact for our, for our audience. Boston holds the record for the most jack-o'-lanterns lit at once with 30,128. Do we have a, a Labor Day fun fact? Here's a Labor Day fun fact that you might not know. The average worker commutes 25 minutes every day. <sighs> Happy birthday. <sighs> Terrible. At least, uh, did you have a Jimmy Hoffa pinata? Probably. <laughs> Eugene V. Debs. Let's see. <laughs> Can I get that costume? Okay, we are nearing the end of the show, and here are our recommendations for further viewing inspired by the old dark house. I am so excited about this one. I've been waiting to talk about this because you've heard me go on, uh, several times during this episode about how much I love Charles Lawton. He inspired this recommendation, which is The Big Clock from 1948. That's a good one. With Ray Milland and Maureen O'Sullivan and Charles Lawton. And the reason I picked this one, it's not necessarily because of the movie, which I think is good, but not great. That's where I fall on that. But Charles Lawton's performance is what pushes this film over the top for me he is so good in this this is uh he this is a film set in the modern period so he's playing a modern character and modern being the mid 40s modern being the mid 40s uh and this is one of those instances where everything that is said about the character is believable to me so I don't think at any point that anyone is uh, casting aspersions on Charles Lawton's character or blowing things out of proportion. I believe everything that is said about him in its most perverse nature, things I probably haven't only even read about or not yet read about, are true of this character. So my recommendation again is The Big Clock from 1948. And my selection is Jack Hill's Spider Baby, or The Maddest Story Ever Told from 1967. Wonderful choice. If you like the vibe of the old dark house with the house full of lunatics and travelers who unfortunately happen upon them, you will thoroughly enjoy Spider Baby, which mines a similar territory, but an even freakier version (laughs) of it. Is Lon Chaney Jr. in that? He is. So similar to The Old Dark House and Boris Karloff, it has a horror icon in a central role as sort of a servant-slash-caretaker. Yes. Similar to The Old Dark House, it has a sustainable weirdness that makes it better than a ton of other situation-specific horror movies. The thing that I would caution you against recommendation-wise, is watching William Castle's remake of The Old Dark House. Don't waste your time. Good to know. It's unfortunate because I love William Castle, and it's a co-production with Hammer Films, Mm -hmm. but it turned out terrible. Oh, that's too bad. Two fantastic recommendations. I hope that you guys go out and check those out. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash magiclanternpodcast. We're on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And we are now on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, if you'd like to listen on either of those platforms. 
If you get the time, we'd certainly appreciate it if you can rate and review our shows on either one of those. Any little bit helps. And have a potato. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. We will be back in two Saturdays with a new episode. Thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Thank you.